So I've been thinking about a word this week, <clears throat> and I wonder if this is a word that you think about very often, or a word that you use, either in the positive or the negative sense. And the word is content. And, and I wonder if maybe you, like me, in my, my, my thoughts, my meandering thoughts, think, boy, I wish I could find a place where I'm content. I wish I could experience what somebody calls contentment. And I know all kinds of people have all kinds of ideas and suggestions about how to get there or what that is or what it even means. But I, as I think about the idea of being content, and I said you could either think about it positively or negatively, like, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty good, or no, I've never been there. But I realized when I think about it, I may not be the best person actually to bring a message about contentment. Because I think I've spent a good bit of my life wondering what that really feels like. I mean, I, I, I'm kind of a low-maintenance sort of guy. I don't, I don't really need very much, but most of my life, this uh, sense of being satisfied or good right here in this moment or uh, ease of mind, you might call it, those have been elusive goals. And, well, I mean, I, I, I'm the perpetual list maker, and I make lists of lists, and then I check my list and see today what I need to put on my list for tomorrow. I'm never quite satisfied that I've got it all done. And, and it's not like I, I want more stuff or more money or more power. I mean, I, I, there are some people who worry constantly about this. You, you've heard about that really rich, really old guy with the beautiful trophy wife who got to worrying about whether or not she had married him for his money. And so one day he just asked her, so would you still love me if I lost all my money? And she put his, her hand on his shoulder and she said, well, of course I would. Don't be silly. But I, I would miss you. And that might be the case. J.D. Rockefeller, who was the richest man, one of the richest men in the world when he was alive, was asked one time how much money it takes to satisfy a person. And he said, always a little bit more. That probably is true for a whole lot of folks. Just, I need a little bit more. I'm not quite there. Well, there definitely is a little bit of confusion about the idea of contentment. I think even Google is a little bit concerned and or confused about that. I think Google thinks that contentment has to do with gaudy, splashy, nonstop fun. Because I Googled contentment. I wanted to know what it said. Because that's where we always go first, right? And the first three entries that popped up when I Googled contentment had to do with ocean cruises. And I guess it it's, seems that if you take a cruise, you'll be content. And I think I'd be constantly worrying about coming down with some dreadful disease. Or that somebody would ask me to dance. And I don't think I can go either one of those places. But there are people who, who are never really content, right? There are people who are going to always complain about something or want something more. Not, things are just never quite right. They're not just quite satisfied or they're just struggling in a way that can't quite get there. I mean, I'm pretty sure that God, after he created everything in six days and he rested on the seventh, because he was pretty sure that on the eighth, complaints would start coming in. 
I, I think that I wonder about those people who, who got a free lunch that day of loaves and fishes and almost immediately began to complain that the fish was undercooked and there weren't enough vegetables. I, I just think some people are never quite content with where things are, even when things are kind of okay. There are some of us, of course, who are walking in a place where we think contentment is the farthest thing from us because of the struggles and the difficulties where we live, that we might look and pray and desire and ask for a place where we can be at some ease and just say, okay, I'm good, even though, even though the storm is rough and the clouds are dark. When we read the text that we're looking at today, we're looking in the letter to the Philippians. Paul writes to this church in Philippi. He goes right to the heart of the matter. And here it is in a nutshell. He says, there will be good times and there will be bad. There will be special times in the church, and there will be unrest. And he's, he's writing to a little church, and he's saying, there's going to be some times of unrest. There will be special times. There will be good times. There will be times of plenty. There will be times of poverty. There will be times of peace. There will be times of persecution. There will be friends, and there will be loneliness. There will never be a perfect plane of existence, however, that is free of disruption and disappointment or disillusionment or even ultimately death. Just life, the world where we live, is going to be this kind of broken place. There's going to be ups and there's going to be downs. How do you find a place in the midst of all that? How do you find that place? How do you journey to that sense of, wow, I'm okay in spite of or in the midst of? And this is the word that Paul has for us. I hope you have your Bible with you, or if you have your phone and you can turn to, or scroll to, Philippians chapter 4. Let's read this text together. Philippians chapter 4. I encourage you, if you can, to look at the words, because that will help them sink into your mind just a little bit more. I'll be reading from the New American Standard, which is kind of a stiff, rough, rough version of the Bible. You may have New International or CEV or ESV or some other more contemporary version. They're all good, but you'll hear the words and hear the message as Paul writes to this church that he knows oh so well and cherishes so deeply. And he says these, and we'll, we'll put these words into context in a moment. He says this. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you did not have opportunity to respond. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. And any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all these things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you guys, he says, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, O Philippian church, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left you, after I left Macedonia, no other church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. He addresses this church very directly. He says, you, you came to know me. You came to know my ministry and what I was all about. And you joined me. You gladly, generously gave abundantly 
and shared in my ministry, even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Now, not that I'm seeking the gift, but I seek for the profit or the fruit which will increase to your account because you were generous. I've received everything in full. I have an abundance. I'm amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you've sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Hear that. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And then he wraps up this little letter by saying, Greet now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints here greet you, especially those who are in Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And you and I would say, amen, and amen to that. Now, I think you have, over the last few weeks, spent some time looking at this letter. And you know the background. This is Philippi. This is actually one of the leading cities in the region. This is a city named for Philip of Macedon, who was the great general, the father of Alexander the Great. Paul went there because he had had a vision. We read about it back in Acts chapter 16. He'd had a vision, a dream. And he said, in my dream, a man from Macedonia appeared to me in the dream and said, come over here and help us. You know, Paul didn't hesitate. He got on a boat, and even in the scripture he says he took a straight line straight to the port nearest this city. And he joined these people. He actually, he, he went into town. It was Paul's habit to go to the synagogue. He, in Philippi, he didn't go to the synagogue. In fact, it may be there wasn't one there. That, this was mostly Gentiles in this city. But he and his companions decided to go down to the river to find a quiet place to pray. And guess what they found? There they found this little band of people who were sincerely seeking God, worshiping God, wanting to know God for whatever reason. We don't get any background of who these people were, how they came to be seeking God, why they got together down at the river. It's a good chance, though, that being God-fearers, God-seekers, they weren't really welcome by a lot of their neighbors back in town. The neighbors, in fact, probably thought they were a little bit weird because they were seeking to know an invisible God. Well, Paul joined them. He tells them the story of Jesus. He connects with Lydia, who is a, one of the prominent women in the community, also very much a part of this little group. She's the one who was seeking God. And the scripture says in Acts 16 that it was Lydia who opened her heart to what Paul had to say to them about Jesus. She became the first convert to Christianity here in Philippi, here in Macedonia, here in this part of the world that Paul went to. And a small church formed. And it grew to be a very courageous, loyal, generous group. Keep in mind, they, they remained uh, somewhat small because, again, they, they were sort of the outsiders in their community. There probably wasn't a whole lot of money available to them. But they became very loyal and were known for their generosity. And Paul undoubtedly had great memories that he shared with the Philippians. Of course, he, he remembered 
This was his first church in Macedonia. He thought about all the wonderful times they had at Lydia's house because she, she opened her home to these people and they met, the church met at her house. They remember the night when they were thrown into jail because they had sort of caused a stir in town, Phil, uh, Paul and his friends. And they were thrown into chains and then put in stocks, locked up in the jail. So what did they do? They started singing. Remember that story? They sang hymns. And there was an earthquake and the doors flew open and their chains fell off. And they got up and started to leave. And the jailer came running in, came running in prepared to kill himself because he knew if the prisoners escaped, he'd be put to death anyway. And Paul says, wait, 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 don't, stop, don't. And the jailer said, what? What must I do to be saved? And Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. That jailer believed and so did everybody in his house. The whole family came to faith. They became part of that church. Who knows? We don't have any more about the story of the jailer, but we know about this church. And we know there are some very uh, powerful conversion experiences and people who had very profound connections with God through Christ who were part of that church. Paul undoubtedly cherished these people and those memories. But now look at verse 10. Paul says, I'm rejoicing that now at last you revived your concern for me. Actually, the word revived is, is the same word that's used of a tree in spring that's sprouting new leaves. He says, your concern for me is sprouting and coming alive just like the trees in spring. Now, obviously, Paul and the church had interacted numerous times. If you look at his journeys, he had been through Philippi several times. And Timothy, who Paul was mentoring in the ministry, and this Epaphroditus, they also had been traveling back and forth and between Paul and this church. And it, these people somehow had lost touch with Paul. We read it right here. He said, you have revived your concern. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. They had lost touch with him. They didn't know exactly where he was, and how could they? They didn't have phones. They didn't have, they didn't have telegraph. They didn't have anything in order to really keep in touch, except for people traveling back and forth. They heard from Timothy, finally, that Paul was in prison, most likely in Rome imprisoned in Rome. And so they put together a gift. They sent it by Epaphroditus, who was with them in Philippi. And they sent it to Paul. And Paul says these words. Look at verse 14. He says, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. There you go again. You helped me at the right time. You came through just when I really needed it. And then he, re he reminds him, and he right, reminds himself, you were my partners in ministry when nobody else was. You joined with me even when I went to other cities. And now you're praying for me, you're worrying about me, you're thinking about me and my suffering as you had before. I praise God for you people, for your generosity, for your heart, that you've stayed faithful over all this time. Paul is probably writing this letter sometime in the early 60s, 62, 63, 64 A.D. <clears throat> he had probably gone to Philippi the first time in about... 49 or 50. So we're looking at roughly 15 years later after Paul had first met these people that they still know him. He still knows them. They still care about him. He still cares about them. They're still sharing in the ministry. They're still giving gifts. They're still that church he knew. And here you are, he says, you have done well to share with me 
you have shared in my ministry. Nobody else has done that like you have. And then notice this. You've got to love these verses. And now he says, I, I'm not really seeking this gift for me. I'm really looking for the fruit, for the blessing that's going to come to you because of your generosity. Your generous, generous gifts have not only helped me, but he says, and notice this. Are you looking at verse 18? He says, the generous gifts that you have sent are a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. The image here, of course, it's, it's Old Testament imagery, which we'll think about for a moment. He said, God goes, oof, you people smell good. Imagine, have you ever thought, God, I'd like for you to just think I smell good once. I'm not sure exactly what I mean by saying that. But here's the Old Testament picture. The sacrifices, we read about it in Leviticus. Read the first eight chapters of Leviticus and the whole sacrificial system. What, did, what were the people instructed to do? When they had sinned, when they had broken a promise, when they had hurt somebody else, when they had gone against God, they were instructed to bring a sacrifice to the priest, and the priest offered the sacrifice on the altar. Now they were expected, told to bring a bull or a, 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 you know, some, a, a, a cow or a lamb or what they could afford. And that thing was slaughtered and cut apart and burned on the altar. Okay. I went for a walk just last night, and two different houses I walked by had the most incredible smell. You know what it was drifting out into the street? Somebody was grilling steaks. And can you imagine when those sacrifices were thrown on the altar, the kind of smell that wafted through the camp of Israel, of charcoal, somebody's grilling steak? I don't necessarily think they said that, but you know how good that smells. What smells better than somebody grilling? And Paul says, you are a fragrant aroma, a well-pleasing sacrifice, just as if you had brought your sacrifice and put it on the altar, and that smell wafts up to God, and God says, mmm, that's good. There's another place, so we have another smell that's talked about. It's when they bring the peace offering, which is grain. And you know what they did with the grain, what the priest did? He took the grain, he made bread, and he baked that. So what's the other great smell? Fresh baked bread. How much better can you get than grilling steak and fresh baked bread? That's a pleasing aroma. And Paul says, when you have given so generously, when you've responded like you have over and over and over, when you've joined me in my ministry, when nobody else did, when you stood beside me, even when you didn't know where I was, you still thought about me. And now that you do know, you put, us, put together that gift. He said, all that generosity and that love and that care that you've demonstrated, God says, mm, that smells good. I like that. That puts you in a place where God says, I'll take you Take your gift, and I'll use you, and I'll continue making you into something more than you were before. That's what Paul says here when he says, you know, I, I want you to know that the gift you sent is a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And you keep in mind that God delights in your open heart. You start to get a sense here that if Paul, we're going to come back and see what Paul's talking about when he says contentment, but you get a sense here that here's a clue. One of the ways to contentment is to get outside of yourself 
and focus on the needs of others is to get beyond your own broken situation and say, I know there's somebody who needs what I can give, who needs what I have. What can I find that person? How can I do that? Where's the opportunity I have to get past my own stuff and focus on somebody else? Well, let's move back a few verses to verse 11. Because here's where Paul says, I got to tell you something. You know, I, I love your generosity. I love your gift. I, I have more than I need, and what you sense satisfies what I need. Your generous gifts have helped way beyond what you could even imagine. But I got to tell you something. And here, Paul is very careful, here in verse 11, not to hurt their feelings. Because he doesn't want them to think he's not grateful. Because he is. But he simply wants to say, I appreciate your gift more than I can say. But I, I didn't ask for it. In fact, folks, I didn't expect it from you. I didn't, didn't even think that this would be something that would be coming that I needed. And why? He says, because I finally learned the mystery. I finally learned the secret. And I think Paul, Paul is probably saying, I finally learned it. Because I think it's been a struggle for Paul. I think he was the inveterate list maker and making lists of lists. He was the one always worried about the next group of people to take care of or the next request that was going to come to him. He was always pressing that direction. But he says here, I finally learned, and this is in verse 12, I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live when I got a lot. In every circumstance, and notice the word, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, of having a lot and suffering need. Okay, let's think about that. What Paul is saying here, first of all, when he says, I, I, I've learned the secret of contentment, he's using this word, the word we translate secret. Sometimes you read in your translation, it might say mystery. The Greek word is mousterion, from which we get the English word mystery. And it was an old, old word that means something that you don't get on your own initiative. You don't get it by studying or learning or doing, doing things. You get this secret. You get this understanding because God reveals it to you. So you get this secret, this understanding of what this means to be able to, to live in the worst of times and the best of times and to find that place of ease of mind, quiet okayness because you've been asking God. You've been walking along and seeking God. You've been saying, God, show me. Reveal it to me. Teach me. Teach me the secret. And God says, I'm working on it. I'm working on you. Slowly but surely. Don't give up. Keep listening and keep watching. Paul says, I needed to learn this. You and I say, I need to learn that. But it's a mystery. It's a, not a result of some special ability that you and I have. It's not because we're special, that we have a positive attitude. You know, I grew, I grew up in what I call the cult of positive mental attitude. Nobody else calls it that. But I, so I grew up in a family, especially with a dad, who was immersed in all the positive, mental, uh, positive attitude and positive thinking and how that's going to change your life. Well, actually, it does. And I grew up in that, and I, I lived in that. But what I learned along the way somewhere was, you know, no matter how positive I think, sometimes life is still stinks. Sometimes it's really hard. I have a good friend who often says to me when she's going on about this thing and that, she says, life is just so hard. I say, yeah, we all say that, don't we? 
It's not some special ability that you have to rise above it or to think positive or by meditation and deep breathing. None of that can hurt. But it doesn't come from things you do. It comes from seeking God who says, I will show you. I will show you. I will teach you the secret. But also Paul is saying right here, this contentment, this ease of mind, this quiet satisfaction, this sense of okayness in the worst and the best of times, it's not contingent upon your circumstances. It's not contingent upon things that finally got calm and quiet and under control. Just when I think, thought things were going to get calm because I was going to retire the first time, things just got crazy again. Then after I had two or three more jobs after that, then I thought, okay, things are probably going to get calm. And then my grandbabies came along, and they lived two blocks away from me. Nothing is calm in my house. Nothing. What a wonderful uncalmness. But you know what? Contentment is not based on calm. It's not based on circumstances. No matter if you're in humble circumstances, or if you're well-known by everybody, or if you're filled full or going hungry, or if you have plenty, or if you have nothing, or if everything in your life is unraveled. It doesn't have to do with your circumstances. So Paul is saying, and I would say the same thing, I'm not speaking here from some high spiritual pedestal. I'm not talking down to you and saying, hey, if you just listen and trust and walk along, you'll all of a sudden have calm circumstances and everything will be great. And Paul's saying, but you know, I'm also not playing poor pitiful me, the, the suffering victim. See how, see how hard I have it. He's not that either. He's saying, I've grown to the place where I can say, I have what I need in this moment and every moment. I have what I need. Now be assured that Paul knew what he was talking about. Paul could say to these people, you know, I've been through some stuff. I've been through some really difficult times, and I have some idea of what it now means to know the secret of being content through the midst of all that. But well, let's think about Paul for a moment. You know, he was a preacher and an evangelist and a missionary, and he started churches. And you would think that somewhere along the way he could say, I, I've had great success. Paul actually realized all along the way he was continually stumbling. He was well-educated. He was advanced in his class. He tells us that in Galatians. He said, I was valedictorian in my class. Paul sometimes couldn't help himself just a little bit. He also talked about his noble heritage. If you turn back one page, he says, you know, I come from this particular uh, family in Israel. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I'm a trained Pharisee. I, I have the greatest zeal of anybody. And I was, according to the law, blameless. Paul kind of liked to say some of those things sometimes. He knew deep inside he was broken like everybody else. He had reason to brag, though, and he had reason to expect to be respected and well-treated. But you know what? He never built a mega church. He never did. All of his churches remained small, were mostly struggling. He was well known to some, but he was not a celebrity. He still carried the stigma of having once been a persecutor of the church. He mentions that himself. That lived in his own head. He struggled with his own history. No matter how much he talked about Jesus and started churches, he still knew his own history. He struggled with that. He traveled extensively, but you know, he didn't have a church home. 
like we often talk about it. He had connections in Jerusalem, but he wasn't really always welcomed there. They remembered his history. He hung out in Antioch. That was the church that commissioned him to be a missionary, but it was more of a formal relationship, at least the way it appears. He had spent time in Ephesus, several years in fact, but after he left, he didn't go back. He didn't really have a home. He probably was lonely. The place of the pastor missionary often is. You know a lot of people, but you don't have very many few, if any, confidants. He knew lots of people. You see, at the end of this letter, he mentions people. At the end of the letter to the Romans, he lists all kinds of people. At the end of the letter to the Colossians, he has a list of people. He knew a lot of people. But he was continuing on the move, and those people stayed where they were. Mostly from a distance, he knew these people. It's interesting, I always think about this. Paul wrote lots of letters. We have 13 of them. We don't have any letters that people wrote to Paul. Now, we have evidence that people sent him a gift. These Philippians did. But you know, we don't have a sense that people were always messaging to Paul, stay with it, you're doing good, <laughs> keep going. It's interesting, isn't it? Paul probably felt that just a little bit. He was respected. You know, people listened to what he had to say. They, for his most part, except maybe those Corinthians, they struggled a lot with a lot of things. But he could be brusque and sharp and short, and probably people didn't always appreciate him. And he didn't have it easy. And he didn't make a lot of money. He largely supported himself as a tent maker. He was almost killed in several places where he went to try to start churches. He had, well, let's just look, a long list of things with which he struggled. If you have your Bible right in front of you, turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, I'll tell you, I've, I've been through a few things, and I can tell you about this. Listen to the list. This is in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians. He says, you know, I've been in far more laborers, imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I spent deep in the ocean. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from all these external things, I live daily with the pressure of my worry for all the churches. Paul had a list, and it came right readily to his mind when he was writing that letter to the Corinthians. And some of his fellow Pharisees and lawyers plotted an assassination against him. He spent two years in jail awaiting trial. And now he's writing from prison in Rome, waiting to see whether he will live or whether he will die soon. And he had his detractors. These were probably the worst. These were people who were on the inside of the church. He refers to the so-called super apostles, the teachers of a false gospel. We read that in 2 Corinthians 11. In Galatians chapter 1, he says, there are going to be people who bring you a false gospel. I'm, I'm worried about that. And there were defectors. In 2 Timothy, he writes, and he calls them by name. He says, remember Hymenaeus and Alexander the coppersmith? They did me great harm. So I want you to avoid those guys, because they'll harm you as well. He's writing to churches about people in the churches. That was some of the hardest of all for him to deal with. But he says, I'm telling you, 
I have been learning as I go through this life to which I've been called that God is showing me over and over that I find real rest, real peace in him, not in the absence of all the struggle. So contentment probably isn't what you and I have always been led to believe. And of course, these are somewhat trite kinds of things, but we say them nonetheless. We've been led to believe that if you have more money, you'll find contentment somewhere. If you have things all fixed up at your house, or if everybody likes you, or if you're cool. You know, do you know anybody who's cool? I'll tell you, anybody who's cool is always on the move. You know why? Because coolness is always a moving target. It always is. So if you're trying to be cool in order to be content, you're never going to stop, and you're never going to get there. Well, we've been told power and influence over other people. You know what that will do? That will turn you and me into a self-absorbed bully. If that's how we think we're going to find contentment. And I'm going to tell you this because I've been hearing this a lot lately. Black Friday is only a few days away. And I've been told incessantly that if I have the next iPhone, that I'll be happy. I will be there. But I want to tell you that the evil denizens of Silicon Valley are already planning the next two iterations of the iPhone. You're not going to get there if you get one this week, even with a good deal. And by the way, being connected on all your devices is not going to get you contentment. As much as the rest of the world would like to tell us it will. So we get consumed, don't we, with moving targets and things that we're trying to get to, that we aspire to, that are going to get us there. Paul says, no, here it is. It's so simple. It's a mystery that God will show you if you say enough, long enough, consistently enough with faith in your heart. God, here I am. And boy, this is a nasty mess. And he says, I know. Stay with me. Because he says it right here. I can do all things through whom? Through whom, man? You can go ahead and say it out loud. I can do all things through Christ. All things through Christ. I can do this. I can have the strength to get through this for one simple and yet the most profound reason of all. Christ. And Christ in me. He's the one that gives me strength. And you say, okay, that sounds so simple. That sounds like a platitude. That sounds like just something you throw out there. All the preachers say that. All, all the good Christians say that. Just, it's just Christ in you. Paul says, no, listen. Listen to me. Listen to me. I have learned this. I can do all these things. He says, I can go through all of this stuff because Christ lives in me. That's the clue right there. The first thing you and I have to be absolutely sure of Today, this moment before we leave this room, is that we've said to Christ, I don't even totally get that. I don't even know how that feels, because it probably doesn't have a lot to do with feeling. But I want you in me. I want that journey. I want to be on that journey, moving to that place. I want to walk with you. I want to wake up every day and fall on my knees and say, Lord, here I am, and I'm facing a day full of stuff. And some of it's ugly and hard. Some of it's going to be really cool. But both ways, wherever I am, I want to find that place where I'm with you. God, I need you to carry me. I want to hear the words of Jesus when he says, All you who are weary 
and heavily burdened. Come to me and what? I will give you rest. Because I'm going to pull the load with you. Sometimes I'm just going to carry you. Paul says, I can live in every situation because I'm utterly confident he is here. And you know what else I'm confident of? And this is what comes with having Christ in you. That I have life eternal. See, I can face almost anything in this world. The best, which is just of this world. And the worst, which is also just of this world. Because God has said, I'm with you. I'm going to always be with you. And you're always going to be with me. I'm going to be with you to the end of this journey. And then I welcome you fully into my presence. And we're going to keep on going. However it is we go in eternity. He says, I promise never to leave you. I will never abandon you. Jesus said to his disciples, the last words we have recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. I will be with you always. He invites us into his rest. Paul uses an old word for contentment here. It's actually, are you familiar with the Stoics? The ancient uh, philosophical uh, uh, idea of the Stoics? Who were very, very proud of their self-reliance, their independence from need for anything else. They were very proud and took great pride in their renouncing desire. Those were the Stoics. Paul said, eh, that's not it. But I'm going to borrow their word because I'm going to give their word this meaning, that contentment is not in yourself. It's not how much time you spend improving yourself or working on doing things and getting better and finishing all your lists. It's not based on your accomplishments. It's not based on finally getting everything under control. It's not that because you never will have everything under control. It's not based on external circumstances. And Paul said, this is not denial. This is not escape. This is not bravado. I'm just not saying, I'm going to be strong and stand above all this. He says, no, you're going to be broken sometimes and flat on your face and still there. You're going to be saying, God, just help me know I'm okay with you. Remember this. God doesn't expect you. Are you ready for this? I'll be really careful when I say this. He didn't expect you to measure up. Because measuring up is pretty far away. Perfection is pretty far away. Now, we always try to walk that direction. That always tugs on us and always pulls us. But God doesn't love you because you finally reached perfection or because you got it all under control. God says, no, I love you right where you are. I love you now in this moment. And I'm not giving up on you. I will keep you right here all the way. He loved you and me first and came to us. We know God because he showed himself to us. That's the beginning of our understanding how to walk the journey all the way through, no matter what happens. We're strong then, Paul says, because he strengthens me. We're strong not because we're strong people, but because the eternal, death-conquering, grace-giving, hope-filling, always-loving Son of God, the hope of glory, is in us. That's why and how we begin to get that secret, that mystery. His mercies are new every morning. 
And you and I can live in the moment because he is with us in the moment. So what do, you, what do we do? We say, I don't know fully how it feels. And sometimes I beg you to help me and I don't see what you're doing. And that's sometimes when I feel that way, I look up at this that was given to me by my kids a long, long time ago. You, you've heard this before, but I'm going to read it to you anyway. Because <laughs> it still continues to resonate. This is the thing, I, 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 I put it on my wall so I could occasionally look at it. Here, here's the story. One night, a man had a dream. He dreamed he was walking along the beach with the Lord. And across the sky flashed scenes from his life. And for each scene, he noticed two sets of footprints in the sand. One belonged to him and the other to the Lord. But when the last scene of his life flashed before his eyes, and he looked back in the footprints in the sand, and he noticed that many times along the path that there was only one set of footprints. He noticed also that sometimes it was in the lowest and saddest, most difficult parts of his life where there was just one set of footprints. This really bothered him. He questioned the Lord about it. Lord, you said that once I decided to follow you, you'd walk with me all the way. But I've noticed that during the most troubled times in my life, there's only one set of footprints. I don't know why. When I needed you the most, you would leave me. Well, you know the rest of the story. The Lord replied, my precious, precious child, I love you and would never leave you. During your times of trial and suffering, when you see only one set of footprints, is because it was then that I carried you. We've heard that before. We've been, we've been down the road with that story. And Paul says, I'm just going to tell you, this is the secret. This is the secret. No matter how dark the clouds, how awful the devastation, I will never leave you. I can do everything because this Christ in me strengthens me. I'm confident, Paul says, that he will supply all your needs. He will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. That's a lot of riches, by the way. So I got one other picture I'm going to show you because it reminds me of this same thing. Now, this um, was taken in 1999. In the late 90s and early 2000s, I grew up in Oklahoma, by the way. All my family is still in Oklahoma. That's why I talk like this. When uh, in the late 90s and early 2000s, there were a number of what were called F5 tornadoes that blew through central Oklahoma. One of them in particular we remember from 1999. The tornado was a mile across at the bottom where it touched the ground, more than seven miles across at the top. It traveled 83 miles on the ground and wreaked horrific devastation. Many lives lost. My sister um, was able to get hold of a photograph that was taken after one of the worst tornadoes. It happened in Moore, Oklahoma. And there was, and you can't see this picture from where you're sitting, so I'm going to describe it to you. There's this picture of utter devastation. There's not a building standing in sight. The trees are stripped bare. The clouds are still lowering and dark, and it is a dark, scary, sinister, difficult, terrifying, dangerous, deadly time. 
And people at this point, after the tornado had gone, were wandering in the streets, not sure what to do, where to go, utterly bewildered, utterly devastated by what had happened. In the distance, in fact, I'll leave this up or you should come peek at it later. You should take a look at it. There is standing up above all this wreckage and devastation a cross, very tall cross, white. And in fact, as the lights, as the sun went down, as it got darker, uh, there were rescue workers who put spotlights on that cross because it was over the First Baptist Church of Moore, Oklahoma. And the church, for some reason, was still standing. So that's where they set up their emergency operations center. That's where the medical people were. That's where the other people were who could give aid. And so they were driving through the streets on the loudspeakers from the police cars and from others. They were walking through the streets and saying, if you need help, go towards the cross. That was what everybody was saying. If you need help, go towards the cross. This is the other picture I've, boy, here I get choked up. Because that's really the story, isn't it? If you need help, if you're finding you're buried, if you're utterly destroyed, where do you go? Where do you go? There's one place. One place. It's not a magic fix. Things don't necessarily just get automatically better and all good. But you find what Paul talks about inside. You find that secret if you know you're okay, you're in good hands, that he will not abandon you or leave you. Let's take a minute and pray, shall we? And by pray, that means it's time to say, okay, God. <laughs> That's how I start most prayers. Okay, God, here I am again. Here I am. I gotta make some things right with you. In fact, God, I'm not sure I even know you for real, because I don't I don't know this contentment and I don't even know where how to find it. I'm not sure how to find you. You know what? The incredible fact of Jesus is that he says, it's not hard. It's a matter of saying, Lord Jesus. I'm broken. I can't save myself. I can't fix me, much less all the stuff around me. I need you. I want you. I put my faith in you. I encourage you today. Write this. Just us. It's just us. We're just here. And, and our eyes are closed, presumably. Doesn't matter. You can pray with your eyes open or closed. It's fine either way. But it's, it's quite okay, because right now it's just you and him. And you, at this moment, can say, Lord Jesus, I just want to make sure. I want to nail it down right here. I want, to, I want to nail it down. Will you come into my life and start me on the journey? Teach me the secret of <laughs> being able to walk through this stuff. Strengthen me for the days that I'm in, the days that are ahead. Strengthen me.